Welcome to Stop Fixing Women. My name is Fauzia Ibrahim. I'm a journalist and a broadcaster. Very delighted to be chairing this session on Stop Fixing Women. Uh, when I was asked to chair this session, my first thought was, are we broken? I didn't realize we need to be fixed. But then I realized it was part of a title of a new book by one of our panelists. Let's bring in our panelists now. We have Catherine Fox, journalist and author. Catherine's had a long career as a reporter and editor of the Australian Financial Review. She was also deputy editor of Boss Magazine, and she helped establish uh, the annual Westpac Financial Review 100 Women of Influence Awards, and she is the author of Stop Fixing Women. <laughs> Yasmin Abdelmajid is one of the recipients of that uh, award, of the award of Westpac Financial Review 100 Women of Influence. Uh, three years later, she won that in 2012. Three years later, she was awarded Young Australian of the Year for Queensland. When she is not winning awards, being a multicultural ambassador, a social advocate, a well-known TV and radio presenter, she's also a mechanical engineer. And of course, she was named in the top 100 most influential engineers in Australia in 2015. And Sherry has gone from prison social worker to executive chairman of Carnival Australia. Now, in between, she broke down the corporate walls for women in the banking sector. She advised the Prime Minister on improving the status of women. She was Australia's representative to the UN Forums on Human Rights and Women's Rights. And in 2004, she was ordered, awarded the Order of Australia. Thank you for coming. Now, and this is one of the first sessions to actually sell out um, of this particular event. Now, it definitely reflects a very strong interest in advancing women in the workforce. You've seen a lot of changes in the corporate world. Would you say that it is easier for a woman now to climb the corporate ladder than it was, say, 20 years ago? Uh, I think objectively, yes. But is it, uh, is it as easy as it should be? No. Uh, there are still plenty of barriers, I think. And it also depends where you are. Uh, there are some companies that have got much better and there are some companies that haven't changed really much at all. So I think the problem now is that women expect to be treated fairly and to be acknowledged and to be treated on their merits uh, and are surprised when it doesn't happen. And you're not quite sure why. So I think there's a, you know, the expectations have certainly changed. And as I said, some businesses have changed, but some just haven't. So it's not equal, it's not even. And it's a case of luck, chance and magic that you end up in the right place. Catherine, would you say then the expectations have changed, but the system hasn't? Well, that's exactly the sort of thesis of the book, if you like, in a nutshell. Yes, I think expectations have changed. The other thing I'd note that has changed as well, and there are a lot of um, men that I've interviewed 
who are in the book, CEOs, Martin Parkinson, um, who's Secretary of Prime Minister and Cabinet and so on. Um, but I think actually the way we approach this in the workplace hasn't changed much. And that, I guess, was my sort of my irritation level, which led to me as a writer then putting it all down. Um, in fact, it was Martin who said to me he had a penny-dropping moment where he realised that we were treating the symptoms and not the cause of the gender gap. And I think that's exactly right. I think we've actually looked a lot at the supply side of the equation and not the demand, the context within which we're working. And therefore, I think the easier road, the less disruptive, has been to do remedial actions, what we sometimes call the sheep dip approach to women. Uh, take the women off, dump them in some unconscious bias training or some empowerment seminars, pull them out the other end, and all those structural barriers will have disappeared. And actually, actually that doesn't happen. So telling women to negotiate better will narrow the pay gap is um, whistling in the wind. And I think that that's the problem. I think we are still wasting, I'm, I hate waste, I think we're still wasting a lot of precious time, energy and money on looking on the wrong side of the equation and we do need to get the men um, involved in this in a, in a really practical way in changing that system. Mm -hmm. Yasmin, you're a mechanical engineer. You work in a traditionally uh, male-dominated sector. You've spoken and written about being the only woman on the oil rig, uh, what do you think you bring to the sector? My awesome swag. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting uh, because I think one of the things that gets talked about a lot when we talk about um, gender equality in the workforce and so on is why women are good for business, where I never hear conversations about why men are good for business. Right, like men never have to justify their existence in the space. Um, we always have to talk. We always have to justify. You know, what is the business case for this? What is the whatever? Is there a moral case, et cetera, et cetera? Rather than, is our value? Do we believe in equality and fairness and an even playing field? And if we do, why don't we do something about it? And and I think, like as a young, as somebody sort of who's um, still as an early grad in the space of an industry that's got quite a hierarchical structure and uh, a process, or we're told there's a process for how you sort of climb the ladder. It's been really interesting to see how my views about things have changed over time. Because when I was at university, there was definitely the expectation that women were equal, right? Yes, there were only seven girls in my grade and 300 guys, right? But we, was, we still believed that we were equal. And so all the chat about fighting and demanding and all of this seemed irrelevant because we were like, well, the system's fine. Like, we've won. Um, and then I think the, my penny-dropping moment, I, I, I guess the other thing was that everyone around me, we had you know, similar education backgrounds. We came from similar socioeconomic areas. And so we didn't see really the disparity that we would be walking into when we got into the workplace. And I remember the conversation around pay gap and, and always thinking, well, grads get basic, like we get told what our pay is, right? So there's no way that there can be any issue. And then finding out um, in my second job that even though I came in with two years worth of work experience um, in the field, and even though I had essentially taught my grade at university, I was getting paid less than a colleague that got hired at the same time um, with a GPA point lower than me, right? Um, and then when I asked, I was like, this guy just graduated, has no work experience, um, 
got lower grades than me, why is he getting paid more? They said, how dare you talk about pay to your colleagues? <laughs> and I was like, hold up. Yeah. This is 20, it was 2014. I was like, this is not how it's supposed to work. Yeah. Mm. Right? Like, do you know that lack of transparency is a huge issue in perpetuating oh, the pay gap? I mean, you know, yeah. we cover all this stuff up. And it was a woman HR person, right? And, and so it was, I think it's, it's been interesting for me personally to kind of come to this realisation that the system and the structures need to change because no matter what we do, no matter how good we are or how well we do, how well we play the system, it's actually not set up to benefit us. It's not set up to be equal. The system is not set up to be equal. So unless we change the system, then we're, we're fighting a losing battle. Yeah. It's really interesting that you say we need to change the system and earlier on we had this conversation and we actually need to work within the system. Yeah. Um, why would you say that? Oh, me. Yeah. No, no, sorry. No, sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. I thought you were looking... Yeah, OK. Um, or we can both. We can, we can all answer that. We're, we're, pretty good. we're pretty good at that. Um, you have to... Yes, absolutely. I mean, you have to... We're not talking about anarchy. Well, it's a system that's anarchy. been put in place. Exactly. But the point that Yasmin's um, making, and that I think we should... There's a lot of subjectivity. You know, when we talk about systems, it's a little bit amorphous, rules. isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. What we're talking about are the rules and the processes, how we recruit people how we promote them, all those decisions that, have, that are made all the time. You're all very aware of them. You've seen them happening around you. And we all know, because there's a lot of now really quite good research and data coming out that shows we like, we like to appoint people who look a bit like us, uh, who reflect our values, because we think that we'll probably get on with them. And a lot of this stuff is being backed by really solid research. So we'll be, some of the people in the book that I interviewed, Lance Hockridge, who was running Horizon, the old Queensland Rail, who's a deeply impressive man, he just said, it's about intervening. He said, I had to intervene to change the way that we were appointing people. What do we mean by merit? What does that actually mean? Because it, people have very different versions of what merit is. Um, and in fact, Martin Parkinson again told me this great story when they used to take grads on at Treasury. Um, when they started to look into this, uh, the, the whole sort of gender area, he found that one year in, they were streaming those graduates and the women were disproportionately ending up in what they call relationship roles. The men, meanwhile, went into the analytical role. Now, it doesn't take um, a Treasury employee to, to understand that the analytical roles were the ones that had a, a faster career uh, trajectory. So it's things like that, that you actually have to, you have to collect the data, you have to want to collect the data, you have to look at the way that those rules are operating, plus you have to overlay that was who's making these decisions? And, and another quick example, Goldman Sachs graduates again, um, they realised they were getting all the, quite a lot of applications from women, but not too many being appointed. And Simon Rothery, who runs um, Goldman Sachs Australia, said he looked at who was making that final cut, and he basically said it was a bunch of private schoolboys <laughs> who'd been at Goldman's for a relatively short time. They were appointing people who looked like them. Uh, so he intervened to change that. So I think sometimes we need to pull this down and talk about what are we actually saying here? What do we mean by changing the system? And you're quite right. Sorry, I'm not ignoring your question. Yes, you, you do have to be there. You have to be observing it. And then you have to actually work out how you can intervene in a practical way and then see what the results are and fine-tune, see what the results are. That's why I'm saying time to stop telling women uh, that you're the problem, and therefore you have to work out the solution. And if it doesn't happen, then it's, it's your, your fault. fault. Yeah. So you know. And is this a realization that's being shared in the boardroom <laughs> and being talked about in the boardroom, or is this just a conversation amongst HR people? 
Um, well, it's more a conversation in the boardroom than probably amongst HR people, actually. Um, but uh, uh, it's being talked about... I mean, I chair a group of male champions of change, you know, CEOs of, science, of STEM businesses, mm. uh, because I think uh, in the STEM space, which is science, technology, engineering, maths, which is where we perform as a nation, you know, on a declining scale, uh, really poorly. Um, mm. But in fact, when you look at the hiring practices and promotion practices in the businesses and the academic and the universities and CSIRO and so on, who are the largest employers, what you realise is there's so much systemic bias mm. at all levels of the organisations that unless the CEOs do something about it, it won't change. So there's a piece about this a systems change that does sit with power. So you've got to have the people who hold power, CEOs, boards, whatever, to uh, consciously decide that they need to change what's going on. Because it's hard to change from the bottom. You can talk about it a lot at the bottom of organisations, but you probably don't have the power base to change it. Uh, you've got to find the power points of power to flip that over. And then once that happens, organisation... Suddenly, everybody thinks it's a great idea to, you know, be having a look at the grad applications and working out why so few women actually made it through when so many applicants were women. Mm. Until you ask the question as the CEO or ask the question about promotion levels mm. and, you know, why have women disappeared at this level of the organisation, then people think it's OK. But as soon as you start... Ask it, being actively involved in asking those questions, then it becomes the business of the business. Yeah. One of the examples I really like using um, is the concept of safety culture in engineering companies, right? 20, 30 years ago, people used to, you know, wear shorts, not wear gloves, you know, hard hats were... Um, Optional. Optional, essentially. And lots of people died, right? Um, in, like, even 10 years ago your average oil company would kill one person a week, right? And then leaders decided that it wasn't good enough, yeah. right? Because they, like, as, as one leader of an oil company said, the best thing we would, we would do consistently was kill people. And that wasn't our business, mm. right? <laughs> so, they, that's an awful thing, yes? Sorry, that's probably... Anyway. Um, <laughs> but what they decided to do was they decided to change the all the parts of the system and make the expectation that you had to um, follow the rules, the new rules that were set. Yep. And if you didn't, then you could leave, essentially. And so they made it... A, they, they essentially instituted a whole bunch of things, like instituted uniforms and um, sort of behavioural management cards and all sorts of things that, you know, everyone who works on a construction site or any sort of engineering site would know about, and also said that it was non-negotiable. And that came from the leaders, right? You could have as many people working in the field as you wanted saying, well, you know, it's not safe enough, but this, the, the actual expectation of the cultural change came from the top. And so whenever, whenever particularly technical companies talk about how difficult it is, I'm like, well, 20, 30 years ago, everybody thought it was crazy for safety culture to be instituted but it became a non-negotiable. And it became about how do we design the systems to incentivize good behavior as well. And um, another really great design example is when they started putting diesel and petrol um, fuel bowsers next to each other. They knew that people would swap them all the time, right? And, and, and put diesel in the, fuel, in the petrol cars and vice versa. So rather than, and they thought, how are we going to make it so that people have to use the right fuel for the right car? They designed the nozzles, nozzles. differently. 
right? And so you think about how do you design the system to actually make the people do the things you want to do and, and get to the place that you want them to be. And on, safety, on safety culture too, they took it right to the top. Yes. Yes. So CEOs of, com of mining companies, engineering companies, have safety in their KPI. Yes, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And the true. board measures safety as a, yep. uh, a, actually as a KPI. So it wasn't just the systems, it was in fact the accountability. And I think that's, that's what's starting to change Funnily in gender enough, and it needs to change more. Even yeah. as a graduate engineer, it was in my KPIs as a graduate engineer that I put in, you know, that I did my, um, JS, uh, my sort of job preparation cards and that I talked about safety once a week or once a day, like yeah. as a graduate. And so that culture was there from the very beginning that you were accountable for it and your salary was linked to how well you did it. Yeah. I, think, uh, I think it's a great analogy and I've heard it before and I think it's terrific because it actually tells us a few things that are really useful. One of the things I would point out, and I'm, I'm, I'm that Anne sort of agrees as well. I work with the Defence Force and I've worked with a lot of organisations and there is a huge amount of resistance to the idea that there is, in fact, any need to do anything about gender. Not at the very top, yep. I grant you, and I think that conversation has shifted and I'm really grateful it has, but you get a little bit further down to what we call the concrete layer or what Laura Liswood, who's an American feminist, once said to me, Catherine, there's no glass ceiling, there's just a thick layer of men. <laughs> 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 Not a layer of thick men, I didn't say that. <laughs> but that's the concrete... And in, and in defence, we talk about the NCOs and the yeah. officers and so on, and they are resisting this. Um, look, not all of them, of course, uh, but there is fierce resistance and often from fairly powerful and influential I people. was just going to pick you up on that one. How much does power and, and, and this reluctance to release their power and influence yeah. have to do with the fact that, well, maybe things don't need to change? Oh, I think that's very true. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I think we've done the fixing women thing is it's non-confrontational. It keeps the status quo going. Mm. So it's basically saying, we'll just keep doing what we've always done. <laughs> the definition of madness, right? Expecting a different outcome from that. Um, so we'll keep sending women off to mentoring schemes because that'll get them into to leadership and so on. Um, and I think that, yes, I think there's an awful lot of that. It's, it's very much, it's fear of loss as well, remember? Um, we've always done it that way. It's worked well for me. Yes. Mm. I am a white yep. middle-aged man. You know the Michael Kimmel quote? You know, yeah. privilege is invisible to those who have it. Um, there's quite a lot of entitlement there. And there's also this, well, where's, that's my job. You know, that's my job. Well, actually, no, it's a job. It's not your job. And I think that there is, you know, and some of that, yeah, actually, there will be more competition. There is some logic there. But frankly, overall and over time, that will, has to be a better outcome. It has to be a better outcome for businesses. But I think there is all of that. There is a real resistance to change and there is a fear of loss. Is there also a fear? fear is real. Fear, the fear is real, actually. Fear is yeah. real. I, I mean, I turned up in banking 20... Sort of eight years ago. <laughs> <laughs> a number that now shall never be repeated. Uh, but when I first arrived at Westpac, um, when I, I was actually in the lift on my very first day, and all these people in the lift were staring at me. I thought, okay, they must be excited that I've arrived. <laughs> uh, and um, and I could then as I got out, I heard them saying, "It's one of them." I was like, "Ooh." One of them. <laughs> and, of course, though, what they were referring to is there was five women who arrived at about the same time, and we were called lateral hires. Mm. 
and we came in to block the career paths <laughs> of hundreds of men, <laughs> hundreds, who saw those jobs as theirs. And they did. I mean, it was the first time that there had been lateral hiring and all of us were women. And so we were one of them. Yeah. And it, was, it followed me around for about two years. People, you'd hear it, you know, them. Like, like we were from outer space. <laughs> and, but the fear, and the fear was real, of course. There, had, there was a group who had been in the organisation a long time and, quite frankly, by dent of time, would end up in powerful positions. Well, let me just pick you up on that fear, yeah. fear of the other. Could that be part of it as well? Well, now that the others are here, we're going to have to change the way we think, the way, the way our, we work, our culture. But that's, but that's also the, you know, any business that thinks they don't have to think about change is going to be dead in the next 10 years. Mm. So any business that thinks you can do the same stuff with the same people is going to be dead as well. So I think there's a dynamic around that which uh, you can understand, but I don't think it makes it acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. Because that hanging on to the past would have been the death of any of the business. And, and in fact, is the death of some of the businesses that we see in our economy who just don't change, who keep thinking that they can do the same stuff. And also um, that idea that tenure entitles you to go up the next... I mean, that's something yeah. the private sector, you know, theoretically used to make fun of the public sector. I know. And you know, oh, you're a public servant, you think if you stay there It long. was there in spades in, And I, I, arrived. I yeah. absolutely agree. Yeah. And I think it was in a lot of organisations. And I think that's part of that. You know, um, that's what we've got now. Why time, time doesn't make you smart, actually. No. Even though <laughs> believed it did. Staying there for a long time didn't make you better. But, Catherine, <laughs> you're also seeing a lot of the older CEOs, the older leaders starting to recognise that this needs yeah. to change. Yeah, I think, I think it's fascinating to actually examine. So... When I mention the male champions of change, as Anne has, um, they're not the only men who are working in this space, and I just want to be clear about that. But it's a model that we look at because it is a cohort. It's spread. It's in different sectors. And it gives us an insight into what's going on. Um, an academic from Melbourne Business School, Isabel Metz, did a study with them, interviewed about 44, I think, of the, of the national group. And what she found is the real, the real enthusiasts, the ones who were really doing some good work, making themselves quite unpopular while they did it mm. uh, as well, um, tended to be slightly older. They'll probably hate me for saying this, um, but they were further on in their careers. And for them, of course, the business case, we've all heard about the business case. Can I recommend, by the way, that you all read Cordelia Fine's wonderful article in this issue of The Monthly about the whole business case and why we all reiterate it, but it's not a huge motivator for change, actually. Yeah. It's interesting. So they all believed in that, but actually it was their ethical uh, core that was important. They want to leave a legacy and they truly believe that more fairness is the right way to go. Mm. So I think that, yes, there's something in that. I think they're coming, and let's be frank, they're coming towards the end of their careers. They're not in the middle there where they're trying to carve out and, you know, climb over each other to get, get ahead. And I think that she, she said it was quite clear to her that some of the real enthusiasts, the real, you know, trailblazers were definitely in that cohort. And for them, it was a question of ethics. There was a moral dimension to it. And they really believed that fairness was important. And they could see that there wasn't fairness in the workplace. And they wanted to change that. Mm. Yeah. We've talked a lot about men and the system. I want to talk about the sisterhood as well. Are there a lot of women in the workforce who are supportive and supportive enough of other women who are trying to climb the corporate ladder? 
in the workforce. Have you seen this, Anne? Yeah, I see lots of supportive women. Mm. Uh, but I also see, and you know, the focus groups that are being run in these STEM organisations, there are a group of women who've had to fight really, really hard to get to seniority in those organisations. And some of them have a view that I had to fight to get there, so everyone should fight. Um, but uh, my experience is quite different to that. Uh, my experience and the people I know in organisations, in fact, have the opposite view, which is nobody should have to go through some of the nonsense that we all went through, and that it's, we have a responsibility, actually, to reach back mm. and pull at least ten more women along with us. So you speed up the pace of change rather than it just being one at a time uh, and, you know, everyone has to fight the same fight. I mean, again, that's complete madness. We need to accelerate change and we need to, with the power that we have... Uh, and I've been very privileged and been lots of organisations where I've held lots of power to use that power to just get rid of some of the blockages and nonsense and the systems that are in place. Yasmin, are you seeing the sisterhood <laughs> in the workforce? Well, I mean, when you're the first woman that gets hired, there's not much of a sisterhood. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> so... People outside sending yeah, warm yeah. messages. <laughs> I, th I mean, I think it's really interesting because I, I hear both things being levelled. I hear people saying, oh, women don't help each other and it's, you know, and women are really mean to each other and it's there. And I think that's really destructive yeah. because I think it, it serves to essentially turn people on each other rather than kind of look outwardly and, and sort of question the paradigm in which we're in. Um, but, I mean, th there's some really re interesting research done in the women in engineering specifically um, that talks about women being seen first as women, then as engineers. And in order for them to climb up the ladder, they have to undo their gender, right? And so um, in order for them to get to a point, they cannot be recognised as women, essentially. And so it makes it difficult for a woman in that position to then remind people that they're a woman and that they're going to, mm. you know, talk about gender equality or to pull other women up specifically and so on. So it actually disrupts um, the power that that's been accumulated in a way if they remind those around them that they're actually women. And this is something that I personally kind of um, also had a bit of a, a shift in, in my very few years um, in the sort of workforce because all of my early years I tried essentially to undo my gender. The only way that I saw success around me as an engineer was through men, right, and the male example. And so I thought, well, that was the way for me to succeed. Um, I didn't have examples. I know no senior, I don't know a single senior female drilling engineer, right? And so I had no one to look to. But realising that there was no way for me to be more masculine, no way for me to actually become a man in, like, and, and, and I couldn't do that. I had to sort of step back and think about, well, okay, what, how does, what does success look like for a female engineer in a way that doesn't undo my gender but also doesn't undermine my legit legitimacy as an engineer? Um, and I think grappling with that and then having those conversations around me with the other women that eventually get hired um, means that we can sort of start to create... I mean, it's crazy that we're still doing this because it's not as if that women weren't hired in engineering, but it's almost as if every generation has to sort of re-understand the conversation, maybe. Yeah. We never, we never say this about men, do we? Anyone working in a workplace like I did, the newsroom of a national newspaper, I didn't notice a lot of men reaching out to other men, <laughs> mentoring them, saying, here's the way to get ahead. Boy, we beat women up. 
We hold them to different standards. We expect them to help each other. We pay out on them when they don't help each other. And they're under extra scrutiny and pressure anyway. There's a study that I quoted in the book, which I I think is worth mentioning. Um, It's an American study, but quite a broad one, so it involved a lot of people across a lot of firms. And excuse the the jargon, but they looked at who got rewarded for diversity-enhancing behaviour. Gosh, I hate that word, diversity, but you know where I'm coming from. Anyone who was helping others, actually suggesting that there was more of a mix in a group, etc. The only people who don't get penalised for that behaviour are white men. Every other group, every other marginalised group gets penalised and they actually looked at performance reviews and so on. So you've got to remember that this is not quite as straightforward as it may seem. Mm. Like Anne, I've had enormous support from women. Mm. Most of my career, really, extraordinary support. Often uh, to their detriment, in fact. Mm. Um, They've gone out of their way to be supportive. But can I also remind you, the most radical definition of feminism, women are people... We are poorly behaved and well behaved, but we do put extra onus on women to behave better and we certainly do it in an organisational context where we expect them to reach out and to be overtly supportive. In fact, though, many of us knowing that that is probably going to mark us down. So it's complicated. Mm. Yeah, It is. Everything is. Really. (laughs) Uh, Catherine, you know, you've always been and you've always spoken out against the advice that women should be more like men in order to get ahead. Yeah, because that really worked out well. What does that even mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I think think it's, you know, that's... As I say, it's one of the reasons I wrote the book. We've effectively been telling women to do that for an awfully long time. We tell them they haven't got enough confidence. Oh, by the way, what's the best way to give people confidence? confidence. <laughs> what, tell them consistently they don't have any? That's, that's a great idea, right? Um, or that they speak poorly. I've spent a bit of time in the book about this. It's a bit of a bugbear. I have many. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but this one about our language needs policing. We apologise too much. We qualify, we, etc. A lot of that's not backed by um, strong academic research, actually. Um, can I recommend the work of Deborah Cameron, Cameron in this area, who wrote The Myth of Mars and Venus? brilliant work. Um, She's an Oxford language academic. Um, There's an awful lot of rubbish spoken about women and language. And what are we holding them up to? This whole thing about you have to behave like a man. How do men behave? That's the stereotype. A lot of men don't behave in the same way. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's been unproductive, absolutely unproductive. I'd say it's worse, actually. I'd say it's undermining. Mm. I think that what we end up doing is embedding the stereotypes that have been the problem in the first place. Mm. That's how we've ended up with a lot of these problems. And I think also for individuals, that. it's a nightmare. I mean, I've yeah. tried it. <laughs> early, in my, early in my career. Um, I tried it once to be like everyone else. had a headache for two weeks. Um, and then at the end of the two weeks, I worked out why I had a headache. And it was because I was, you know, trying to be something that I wasn't. Mm. And I think there's a, you know, all of us really are only successful, and we all know it, when we're doing, when we're true to self. You've got to be true to self. Yeah. And I'm not a man. Uh, and I'm never going to behave like lots of my male colleagues. It's true, I'm not. <laughs> Despite things that have been said about me in the past. But all... <laughs> so my mum said that to me. On my, like, I remember as I, after I got my first job, she was like, just remember that you're not a man. And I was like, that is the weirdest advice. <laughs> <laughs> I've ever 
given me about starting work, right? But it was essentially because she yeah. knew that that was going to be the expectation. Exactly. And, you know, again, you're absolutely right. And, you know, trying to be something that you're not. The other thing is that we know from a lot of research and a lot of the talks here today, Cordelia Fine's talk and so on, is that, um, in fact, assumptions are made about you based on your gender without you saying anything or doing anything. It's automatic. It's how, it's how we've been raised. A lot of it's about socialisation and context. It's not about biology. But we do make assessments about women and men very, very rapidly. So even that pretense that you might think... But you know, you know, Anne, what really surprises me, and I started the book with this anecdote. I was at a forum about a year ago that a bunch of the great and the good from the corporate sector, all male, you would know all of them, um, and <laughs> it rapidly became a discussion, and it was a bunch of... It, the audience, a bunch of incredibly accomplished and experienced women. Um, started off, yes, there should be more women on boards, but rapidly became, oh, you don't put your hand up, you don't ask for these positions, mm. really quickly. And I thought, gosh... That's interesting, isn't it? And these were apparent, you know, these are the people who are supporting the agenda, so-called. Um, so we do, I think, default to that very quickly because it's it's it is a tough issue, and I think that they do fall back on that very quickly. So that you know, you should be doing what we did because it worked for us. Well, this is but this is the the thing that I want to take you up on too. You know, a lot of a lot of the audience, a lot of people would look at you, the three of you, and say, "You have illustrious careers. You've made it. Yes, you've had the struggles and." What would you say to a young female graduate just going up for their first job and is facing that patriarchal system? If I could start with you, Catherine. Three in my household. <laughs> I have three daughters, um, two of whom have recently been uh, for interviews. Um, look, I think uh, knowledge is your best bet. Um, I wouldn't... I don't think it's appropriate to start to tell people how to behave, I think, but it is important to have your eyes open about what the workplace is like. And I think that's one of the, the disservices we do. And again, the reason I write what I do, let's just be a bit clearer about what is actually going on. So when I go to an interview, do I think that everything is going to be assessed against a list of qualifications and experience? Or do I understand that there could well be some subjectivity in there? Maybe I should be asking, how is this working? Uh, certainly once I'm in the workplace, how is my pay being uh, sorted out? How is that job that's being advertised, how is that being assessed and, and how are promotions organised around here? I need more information and clarity and transparency that I think we do. I think we need to arm people with more knowledge about that. Um, and I've, I've spoken to some amazing women over the years, including the one next to me, but really feisty women who've said, I don't understand why I didn't get more of that of a pay rise, can you please explain it to me? And I think, you know, that, that's really helpful. Um, and if you're at the right point and you can do that, I think definitely that's the way to go. Yasmin? Well, I mean, that is me. Um, <laughs> so, so the advice I'd give myself. Um, I mean, I think, I definitely think having an understanding of what you're going into um, is really important. And I, I, you know, I am someone who likes reading about the stuff and did read a lot about it and still didn't have enough information going in, yeah. right, and still had a belief that I was somehow different, that times had changed, that, you know, um, the company that I was working for would treat me differently, that it would be okay. And kind of that understanding that the workforce, um, that I was no different from everyone else just because, you know, I was Yasmin, and, and kind of going in with the understanding that I was going to come up against obstacles and arming myself with techniques like... Um, calling things out when I, when I saw it or working through um, leaders that I thought 
understood in order to kind of... Because I suppose the flip side is, as a young graduate, you do need to make it. You do need to... Well, it feels like you need to toe certain lines in order to be able to succeed. And so the balance between fighting for what's right versus actually wanting to continue to have a career, yeah. right? That I have been penalised numerous times in my in my very short career as an engineer because I'm someone who chooses to speak out about these sorts of things. Because it is the middle management. You can have yep. the best policies in the world, yep. but it is about implementation. And if your boss doesn't care, if your boss thinks that we're hiring too many women, I had my boss say to me, look, when your resume came across my desk, I thought, she's just a bit too much of an activist for this engineering job, right? Like, I literally topped my grade. So I don't know how much more of an engineer I can be, right? Um, but if I was a dude, right, it would be, oh, wow. Isn't he doing great for his community? And I know that because somebody who does the same work as I got hired the year before, and everyone loved him for the work that they did. And so understanding that you're going to go into the world and it's going to be like that, and being prepared for that is really important, and not letting that silence you. Right? I think that's the other thing, is that I so often was like too scared to say anything. And I thought that if I towed the line, that it would work for me. But in the long term, it doesn't always. Yeah. Right? And so figuring out what works for you, figuring out who the people around you that understand, I suppose, like, yes, it's the idea of mentorship can be problematic, but I use sponsors. I suppose, like, people senior in the organization that get it, that will champion, um, that will insulate me a little bit from, um, from the decisions that managers make. Um, but understanding that change is hard, mm -hmm. right? And that we are all individually part of that change, but we should not let the obstacles um, stop us from doing what we're doing. And then, and then telling the stories so that other people know, like me, that, that yes, there are obstacles, but yes, you can make them through, and yes, you continue to you continue to succeed. Um, and even if it doesn't, it makes a great story. And what would you say to a young female graduate just entering the workforce now? Um, well, the first thing I'd say is, is this what you really want to do? Or are you doing this because it feels like it's the next step on? Mm -hmm. Because that will determine um, really whether you, you know, I, I guess how you want to engage. So you may not want to take... Uh, take it to the wall if actually it's just a step on the road to something else. So I guess that's the first thing. Be clear about whether this is really what you want to do. Uh, and Because often your first job, you've got no idea. Secondly, I think the point of context is really important. So for everyone in my extended family and others I talk to, I always talk about the context of, of workplaces. Because lots of people come out of universities and out of courses out of school without really understanding the context of workplaces. So what is it you're going into? What are the, what's it like? What are the people that you're going to be dealing with? How do you manage stuff? Where are the boundaries? Because um, you'll find them soon enough, but understand there will be. And, and the third thing is also find someone you can talk to. Mm. So you do, and the idea of sponsors, I actually, I'm not a rap for the, you know, endless mentoring of everyone. Um, and particularly endless mentoring of women because it does feel as though you can't do anything unless you've got someone telling you what to do. But inside organisations, the most powerful thing is sponsorship. You've got to... And men use this really well, um, and women are learning to do it better, but it's that thing about who in the organisation is actually interested in you 
and who will speak for you, mm. which is very different to mentoring, having someone to tell you what to do or, mm. you know, to help you, whatever, whatever mentors, who knows what mentors do really, but um, <laughs> have coffees, lots of coffee. Um, but, uh, Cheryl, Cheryl Sandberg called it therapy. Therapy, at one oh my stage, God. I thought some mentoring, you know. Yeah, so I'm sorry to sound so cynical about that, but I've, I've had so many people, I really want you to mentor me, and I go, why? <laughs> what, like, why? What do you want me to do? It's like, I'd love a coffee. It's like, I don't need any more coffee. <laughs> <laughs> if you need coffee, go to a coffee shop. <laughs> but it's, um, but the, the sponsorship is quite different because that's the moment when there is a broader conversation about the next great project or... You know, we're going to sponsor someone to go and do a course somewhere. That someone speaks up and says your name, not the name, and not the other five people who are in the room already have their name chosen, and it's probably a man. And this is actually the point at which I think it's really important for women to speak for women as well. Yeah. So it's not about um, women fixing each other. It's actually that having someone in the room at the right time who can say your name. Mm. Having someone at the boardroom who says the next person we appoint to the CEO or the executive of this organisation, let's go and find a woman from somewhere in the universe. I'm sure we'll be able to find... It's that thing about sponsorship mm. where a voice is spoken. And I think you've got to understand that and look for it in organisations because there will be someone who's prepared to be your sponsor. Yeah. And you've just got to find them. And they could be, uh, male or female, quite frankly. Yeah. I, I think every major opportunity that I've ever had in my life, um, in my engineering career and outside, has been because of sponsorship, yeah. right? It's incredibly powerful. Because it's about that, that idea of referral, yeah. right? Social media um, clicks onto that really well. You like things that your friends recommend, yeah. right? And so we all believe in things that our friends or that people that we respect or people that are in the room recommend. I think the last, the, the one other thing that I wanted to add is about context, which is to pick your battles. Yeah. Right? You're not going to be able to fight every Everything. single thing. So decide what is important and fight those. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to pause the discussion for now, and I would invite anyone who's got questions to please make your way to the microphones. There's one microphone there, microphone one, and the second one there, microphone two. Now, while we're getting the questions, um, Catherine, I'm going to come back to you and ask. Now, we're obviously preaching to the converted, a lot of the people here share the same ideals and share the same uh, thoughts as well. How do we then get the message out to those who need to be converted? Mm. Well, I think the way that you get the message out is actually talking to this audience mm. as well. Um, so I wouldn't say... I, I always think we, we sort of act, act as though this is a bit of a zero-sum game, so we don't need to talk to other women. We can just... No, we need, we need to do all of that. Um, and I also think that we may not all have the same views. And one of the reasons... Somebody said to me, interviewed me the other day and said, who do you want to read the book? And I said, well, obviously it'd be great if some male CEOs read it and got slightly affronted by it, but actually thought about it. Um, but I also thought it's an important message because I deal with a lot of women and, I mean, for heaven's sakes, they're holding down jobs, they are often got caring responsibilities. It's really... Some of this stuff's really confusing um, and draining, mm. uh, personally quite, quite draining. So I think sort of hearing... It's, it comes as a relief to sometimes to say to them, you know what, your confidence is fine. <laughs> you can negotiate. Um, it's not you. Mm. It's actually not you. Um, mm. Not because you're perfect, right? We can all use advice, and I've been very clear in the book. I'm not saying we're perfect. What I'm saying is tinkering with sort of the dials in our brains is not going to change those structural issues. But what you can be saying is, wait a minute, 
You know, another workshop on that is probably not a good time, uh, use of time. Let's actually think about having something with the entire team. Let's talk about some of these issues or let's have a talk to the boss and try and get that through as well. So I think we've got to engage whatever levers that we can. And it is a better time to do that at the moment. And that's because of things like the male champions. That conversation, and Anne and I would remember, because like her, I have been hanging around for a while. Um, you know, 30 years ago, unthinkable, unthinkable that men of the, you know, those kinds of CEOs would sit and take this seriously at all. Mm. It wasn't an issue. If you said to them, but you've got no women in senior ranks, they'd say, they don't want the jobs. They like they to say stay there aren't any. And there aren't, there any. aren't any. And anyway, they don't want them. So the fact that this is actually on the agenda, and it is, and they're getting pressure, and they're getting pressure at the board level as well, mm -hmm. this is the time to start pressing those buttons. So you actually, I think this is a time when we can all contribute to this, but also understand ourselves. No, it's not about reprogramming me or putting me through the sheep dip. Right? It's, it's time to do something differently and expand that conversation. Let's throw um, the questions out to the audience. I believe we've got someone in question. Um, microphone one. Hi, yes. Uh, my name is Rachel and um, I'm very heartened to hear what you guys are saying in terms of working within the systems uh, that obviously have very entrenched um, sense of the way things that work. They're not set up necessarily to be equal for us. Um, and so it is very heartening to hear you guys making um, systematic change. Um, it also brought my mind to something Yasmin had said in an earlier panel uh, about the idea of... Um, uh, so uh, encouraging people to start businesses and where my mind went with that was initiating new systems that are set up to be able to um, have equality right from the start or even set up to be able to support us right from the start. And so my question is about um, for people who are interested in going out into the world and starting systems, being a part of small businesses that grow... Um, what your recommendations would be for us as people who've grown up in this world and have our own unconscious biases um, already built in, just general ideas or points you could say about, okay, this are, are these are concrete things you could do to make your business as feminist, as um, inclusive, as um, equality-producing as possible moving forward. Um, my uh, first thing I'd say is that the structure of work in most organisations, uh, stems from like the 1920s. Mm -hmm. Nine to five, five days a week, blah, blah, blah. Anyone who's got kids at school, school holidays, you know, uh, just, it's, it's actually a very archaic system that controls uh, most big organisations. So if I was starting something afresh, the first thing I'd be looking at would be, um, when do you want to work? What's the, what are the outputs I want from you? And therefore, you know, let's make that work so that you don't have to fit your life into work. Work fits into all the things you've got to do. So that would be the first thing. And then the second thing would be um, just to think, have a look at the makeup of, as you're hiring people, which you end up doing if you're running businesses, um, have a look at how you're doing it and the makeup of the people. Because actually, fairness is an outcome, it's not an input. And we talk about it a lot as an input. It's something, you know, it's a fair system. Well, actually, it's not a fair system unless the output is fair. And I think you've got to start thinking about outputs rather than the process and inputs, which is where a huge amount of time and effort is spent. But we still end up with the same outcome. So, obviously, that's not working. Mm -hmm. So, I'd be going for outcomes as well as looking at hours of work and structure of 
structure of jobs. Mm. Mm. Would you like to step up to the microphone? Yeah. Um, hi. Um, thanks very much for the um, discussion so far. I found it really interesting. Um, my name's Natalie. Um, at work, I've been told that I'm too emotional sometimes and that it undermines my credibility. Um, I've never been told this by female bosses, only by male ones. Um, and I think that happens to women quite a lot. Um, do you have any advice on how to handle that conversation in the moment? Since I obviously disagree that my input in a discussion is seen as overly emotional and therefore I struggle to kind of respond to that criticism um, with the right kind of response. That's a great question, actually. Yeah, it's yeah. funny you should mention that exact um, scenario is something I've written about in the book. A woman of about your age came up to me after a forum in Brisbane last year and she said, um, I am so fed up with this advice about putting your hand up and speaking up in meetings. She said, when I do that, my boss draws me aside as we leave the meeting and says, you're, you're very emotional. <laughs> and all she's done is ask a couple of questions. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's no foolproof advice, but one of the things I would say is that um, Lance Hockridge, who I mentioned before from Horizon, they set up this campaign called... Uh, uh, the catch cry was, what do you mean by that? Mm. They were using it to pick up on casual sexist and racist comments. But it strikes me that sometimes with those kind of really quite gutting and horrible sexist comments, what do you mean? Can you tell me what, exactly what you mean? Um, and make a note yourself of what you were saying in that meeting and your interactions. I think you've got to pin people down. Mm. Because actually, that's um, a horribly stereotypical driven um, and quite emotional reaction to your input in a meeting. Um, but I think actually pinning down what are you talking about and, and I, I would, you know, here's what I said and here was my contribution to that meeting. That's on a one-to-one -one level. Um, you know, the, the, the broader issue is the same one. There, there's an there's, they're seeing you through a lens um, and seeing you as a female, so when you open your mouth, you're emotional. By the way, has anyone seen an emotional man at work? <laughs> Angry? Angry? Can't That's an emotion. Yeah. Yeah. We, so we do that. We do that all the time. You've got to have something ready, though, because at those yeah. moments yeah. when yeah. someone says that to you, you just feel like crying. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Being emotional. Yeah. yeah. Being so irritating. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, you get that little thing in the back of your throat, like... <laughs> So you've almost got to be ready for it and either... And that's why the one-liners yeah. are a good response. Yeah. You know, what do you, what actually, what do you mean? Uh, I mean, in a way that throws it back. Yeah. Um, and I heard someone actually once saying, when someone said that to her, she said, oh, emotion's the new black and just walked away. <laughs> <laughs> you see, he was saying, what, what does that mean? <laughs> so you've, you've almost got to be ready. You've got to know it's going to happen. And you've got to be ready, and you've got to have something ready so that you can do it and walk away, almost. Because, I yeah. mean, you can engage, but you may not engage the first time because your eyes will start leaking or something <laughs> will let you down. And just do it and walk away and leave them standing there going, what on earth did happen then? Because <laughs> that's almost as good a response as anything. Be unpredictable. <laughs> <laughs> that's some great advice. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like to ask you a question? Yeah. Hi. Um, thank you for today. You guys are all glowing on the stage, and it's been really inspiring to hear you all. Um, my name's Lauren. I actually work here at the Opera House. Um, I understand that some of the barriers to finding a healthy and fulfilling place in the workplace have been mentioned, and it's, we've been talking a lot about structure. Um, but one thing I feel hasn't been touched on has actually been sexual harassment. Um, in, here I am in my first job. Uh, entering the workforce, um, 
and I was faced with sexual harassment here um, by a manager. I remember in high school at our International Women's Day, we had a um, member of our um, school um, alumni come and tell us, a school full of girls, that you know, one in four of us will face sexual harassment in the workplace, mm. and that was on International Women's Day. You know, mm. um, so I'm kind of faced with this just lingering worry about the future, and that yes, there are structural barriers to success in the workplace, but how should we go about that? The other barriers such as what I face. Again, it's the issue of, do I speak up? Do I say something? And there's a possibility I might lose my job over this. Catherine, yeah. how would you handle this? I think, it, well, it is, isn't it? It's the power imbalance mm. that, that is involved there. And, um, and of course, actually, your job is, is probably compromised. You know, it could well be a case of, of that. I mean, the, you know, we used to say, I suppose, to, to women, particularly young women, it doesn't happen to people my age, but we used to say, you know, there are, <laughs> but there are protocols. You know, this is this is yeah. this is not allowed. It's it's illegal. Um, and then we saw cases like David Jones, where that young woman—it still makes me Channel see. Seven. Oh, and Channel Seven are playing out in front of us right now. But that young woman, do you remember? She actually followed HR protocol to the letter. She, the first time it happened, she she said no. And she went and complained to HR, who told her to pretty much be quiet. Second time it happened, she went back and she said, I'm, I'm lodging a complaint. Now, you remember the wash-up from that. That young woman left Australia. And Mark McGuinness went on and became a CEO again. We don't, we don't handle this very well. And I think, you know, that is etched in our minds, those of us who who've cover these things, but also all of us. We think that's what happens when you, can, when you speak up. And that's bitterly disappointing. I would like to think, I would like to think we've moved on since then. Certainly the publicity around Channel 7 and, in fact, what happened, and I'm not suggesting it's exactly the same, but you might have read about the CEO of uh, QBE, um, who also was seen as making a, you know, a, a decision that was not in line with the ethics of that organisation. So I think that these things are being taken seriously. However, I think, again, it is about context and it is about weighing that up because um, anyone who's worked in this area... Uh, the Human Rights Commission has done research into this. Any of the lawyers who work in it will say that, unfortunately, um, it is often the victim of those, those sexual harassment attacks that, that ends up being the one who then loses their job. And that's, that's a sad reality. So for you, if it makes you feel powerless, mm. speak up. Mm. The worst thing about sexual harassment is that it's designed to disempower you. Mm. And... If you don't speak up, you carry that as, your, as its legacy. And yes, you might lose your job, and yes, it may be uncomfortable, but you will feel like you stood your ground. Mm. We, so we spoke I would up say and he to got you, fired, so... Yeah. yeah. I would say... <laughs> I think it's also really important to speak up for your own self For yourself. That's if the you thing about working out what's important to you. Yeah. Work yeah. out your core. You will disappoint yourself if yeah. you don't. Stand, yeah. stand up for the things you feel important, mm -hmm. are important to you. And maybe you do pay a price, which is really pisses me off when I hear about it. But it hap I know it happens. Mm -hmm. But still, at least you walk away feeling like you stood your ground. And that's much more empowering than what somebody else has done to you. 
Um, so I know the CEO of the Opera House. I will speak to you. We've got one more. We have time for just the one more question, fortunately. I'm the lucky one. Um, first, I want to thank all of you. You're um, tremendous people. You've done amazing work, and you continue to devote a lot of time and energy to creating better companies and better cultures. My question is around culture, actually, because it feeds the systems that we work in. Um, I'm a convener of one of the male champions of change in the STEM environment. And I asked the group of 12 CEOs, what do you think the greatest challenge is to creating change in your environment? And the first response, which was echoed many times, was, it's the blokey culture. And so when we unpacked this a bit, I said, well, what does this mean? They said, actually, to your point, Catherine, it's this concept of, first of all, the entrenched male breadwinner culture in the country. And second of all, it's this idea of mateship. You look after one another. So um, given the high proportion of single-sex schools in the country, and I mean in that way, I mean a lot of single-sex male schools, where we look after one another, we make sure that we take care of one another. So when I'm in this position and I'm looking for someone to fill that position, of course I'm going to look after you. So what I, I'm not, I can, I'll address it to... Um, Actually, Anne, because you're um, running Carnival. So how do you deal with this? And is, do you have any suggestions as to what we can do while boys are 12, not when they're CEOs? <laughs> Honey, if I knew the answer to that, I would have changed the world a while ago. <laughs> I'd take them all off on a camp. No, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> Until they act like women. <laughs> Oh, look, honestly, it's such a tough question because oh, yeah. uh, it's so... It, you know, by the time they turn up in our workplaces, mm. so much of uh, that attitude oh, yeah. is already there. I mean, I, I, you know, I was in banking for 12 years. There were some sections of the bank you'd go and you go, my God, it's like, what is this? It's like some sort of frat club. <laughs> uh, and you're meant to be at work. You know, it was a really... I struggled with it. I mean, I guess... The only thing I'd say is that uh, I can't change all 12-year-olds, even though I'd love to. Um, I think there is something about... Uh, and, in fact, i tell you what's happening at the moment, which I think is good for all of this, which is uh, the rise of women's sport. Because sport's the other place boys learn to look after each other, particularly team sport. And girls have been locked out of lots of team sport for a long time. And... Uh, I mean, I'm biased partly because I'm on the board of Australian Rugby as well, but I tell you what, the women's sevens have changed the face, not just of rugby in Australia, but rugby in the world. And it's the fastest growing form of the sport, and the girls who play have learnt a camaraderie that doesn't come easily to girls. Mm. And it's, I mean, it's a really... Just because I haven't been... You know, those girls who play team sport get it, but lots there's been very little team sport available. And so I've watched that with interest, and then I've watched the engagement between the boys and the girls. And so they see each other as peers. And, in fact, of course, in rugby, the girls are much better than boys. So <laughs> they don't just see each other as peers. They do get that the girls are much better. And so there's something in that dynamic that we need to find ways of replicating, where it's where respect 
comes from that, that activity. But, I mean, that's just one example. I'm buggered if I know how to change the whole world around that. So I'll do I, it a bit at I a time. I wonder, given, given we're spending so much time going into schools and talking to girls and encouraging yeah, them yeah, to go into yeah. STEM, should mm. we not be giving equal time going into boys' schools and talking about gender equality? Yeah. Somebody, once, somebody once asked me, why do we, when we ask so many women to go into male-dominated industries, why don't we ever ask men to go into women-dominated industries? What, like... Because what essentially we're telling women to do is to participate and engage in the existing power structures of what is, what is deemed as good and powerful um, and what is women's work, right? Um, I think the way that I survived was by co-opting like, co myself into the blokey culture, right? And that doesn't work eventually in the long term because it, it works up to a point and then they're like, oh, wait, she's not one of us, really, I'm not going to go out and get wasted at the bars. I'm not going to go to strip clubs. I'm not going to talk, you know, trash about my partner. That's, those are the rules of the club that you're in. They're, they're not a club that I want to be part of. Um, and so I guess it's about maybe thinking of how do we... And we're essentially talking about redefining Australian culture. Because yeah. let's not... Like, Australia is incredibly misogynist, right? If we look at our politicians, look at the people on our commercial networks, look at the kind of language that is used about women and is accepted about women in every sector of this country, right? Workplaces are places where we can define a certain culture. But if people are coming in with an expectation, it's going to be incredibly hard to change. Um, but I think it is about using, redefining those norms and saying what is, like, mm. those blokes, essentially, they get to define what blokey culture looks like. And maybe blokey culture can look like respecting women, right? Maybe that's what we need to do, is if they are so convinced about mateship, maybe, maybe women have to be part of those, that mate group as well. I'm not sure, but there's got to be something that we can um, play with there because, as you say, by the time they get to the workforce, we're not part of their club mm. and we haven't been for a really long time. Catherine, it's also hard to influence boys. Sorry, I'll just, sorry, it's really hard to influence boys. You know, sing, single-sex schools, uh, if you turn up at a single-sex school <laughs> to talk to, you know, a room of 500 boys about gender... <laughs> maybe maybe, maybe also, Phil Heath has... Life is short, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> and also, mate, mateship is a really interesting concept, isn't it, in Australia? Mm. And I've, I've written about this in the book about defence because, you know, we always talk about it as though it's a really positive thing. And there are many parts of it that are, but it is a very masculine concept and there are parts of it that aren't so great in our culture. And I, do, I think we've got to have a much longer and more nuanced discussion about that. Has the culture changed? Not nearly as much as it should have. So I think that in many ways our social attitudes have changed and they've had to. Some of that is not because we all feel comfortable about it, but we all know um, many families have two income earners, they have to share, you know, caring and all of that kind of stuff. That's kind of a reality for a lot of people. Have our workplaces changed and our institutions? Not at the no. same, yeah. not at the same rate. So no, and a lot of those beliefs, and they are very, there is a very Australian element to that, and I think that's, that's a tough one. And in the army, you can imagine what that's like to it, tackle. I, Phil Heath took his second school from single sex to co-ed, and he yeah. said, those schools were made for another century. Yes. These mm. schools are for the 21st yeah. century. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And if, if you look at any discussion around dis, um, like discrimination and in-group, out-group behaviour, <laughs> right, the one way to bridge in-group, out-group behaviour is through empathy yeah. and through human connection. And if boys are not hanging out with girls until they're 17 years old, how have they created... How will they see women as their equal? 
right, and as other humans. Mm. So that's what we have to change. And with that, we're going to have to end the discussion, unfortunately. Thank you. Please thank the panel and Sherry, Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Catherine Fox. Thank you so much. And thank you, too. Thank you for coming.